So why did you keep putting it off till you were 45 to just get up first on stage? For me, I wasn't aware uh, the craft existed here in Australia until I was exposed to Channel 31 and I saw Champagne Comedy, believe it or not. Up until then, I just thought it was a delicacy that operated outside of Australia and something that you couldn't workshop in a room weekly. So, But that was when I jumped up first at 25. Um, So how come... Uh, you kept putting it off or just didn't think about jumping up or? Uh, I think it was a bit the same. I didn't, when I was a kid and stuff, I didn't realise that people like me from the bush did it. Like it was Americans, it was TV people, yeah. it was. And then I've had, um, I suppose, an, an odd and interesting path through life where the years that I may have done it, like when I was 18, 19, 20, 21, I worked nightclubs, pizza shops, you know, hospitality sort of places and the after work drinks or whatever we did after you know i was always the funny guy not really intentionally like just i knew i was and people would tell me without asking you know um and i often have wondered if i jumped into it then at say 21 how life would have turned out and you'll hear people say things like no i'd probably be dead well i probably would but i didn't know that it was available in bendigo where i grew up i didn't know I don't know if there are open mic classes. I don't know if there are comedy nights. As far as I know, there probably wasn't. Because if there was, I worked around that nightclub scene. You would have known. I think I would have known. I knew I funny people. But my comedy was in movies or, like I said, Saturday Night Live or shows like that that come from far, far away. And I think inside of me, for whatever reason, there was a, oh, well, it wouldn't matter if there was because you're, you're not worthy of that. Mm. Which might come back to self-worth, I suppose, but. Did you start, um, if you said something, let's say you work in a nightclub and you said something funny to one of the blokes there, and like a bouncer, and they laughed, would you then keep that joke and try it out on <laughs> the dinner table or your mates or your cousins or a girlfriend? Yeah, sometimes. Um, I think Because I, I noticed those patterns were emerging. I had a bit of material, yeah. Uh, like, and- so you're kind of writing without being a comedian, right? You're just being a comic in your mind to your friends. Yeah, and a cheap one because I'd try it on the bouncer and if that worked, then I'd go straight across and try it in the bar. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, and like, this is years before this. you jumped up. Oh, yeah, but I knew, I think life's funny, like how hindsight and everything works. Now that I've been in it for, I think this is ninth year now, yeah. um, I look back and I think, well, not not maybe this is how it was meant to be. This is how it was meant to be. It, it, it's turned out this way. Like there's, oh, I, I have, I have had the thought. I don't like that so much, Johnny. But I, I have had the thought. What if I'd started earlier? But I think the, the the design of my actual existence was that it was meant to be this way. Yeah. Not through any planning, just through something that I'm not a religious man, but something that we don't understand. That maybe you know, that it was your calling sort of sense. That I had to get a lot of other stuff out of the way and learn a few, I suppose, lessons and go through a fair few things to get to the point where... And also, I also had a lot of trouble, and at times still do, giving myself the permission to do it. Like, I what think do you I, mean? I think I was brought up in a very serious environment where you need to go out and work for 40 hours a week and you need to toil and struggle. And um, I listened to a few of your other pods with people and I think you asked about a few of them about their parents or whatever supporting it. Well... Mine are fine, but they don't really get what it is you're pursuing. You know, like, how are your little skits going? How are your little gigs going? Or whatever. They don't. They're not on that same page, I don't think. So, yeah, I think, to make a 
short answer long, I had to, I said, go through a lot and, and learn some things about myself and and get to a point where, where it was okay to do it. As in why I wouldn't give myself that permission or I thought, I think it was drummed into me at an early age, yeah, or, or it wasn't that this was a possibility. Like, I don't know of anyone in my extended family that was artistic or anything like that. Mm. So I think it was just such a, an out there idea that it took me a long time to get it into my little pea brain that, well, hang on, yeah, you're allowed, you can. Now, yeah. where'd your first gig? Where? Well, I used to go down to the lounge and do the workshops for oh, probably a year. And that was when guys like Dilrook and those guys were, you, I could see them getting to the point. And then if you did all right, you could jump on that Tuesday night and do a spot back in the Robbie G days and stuff when he was training. And it was a good little environment and mm. you'd, you'd get up and do a bit at the workshop and then they'd critique you. Yeah. Um, sometimes nicely, sometimes not, but they critique and then you go off. And I never jumped up much. I, I was still in my mind thinking, oh, maybe I could just go there and get better at the craft and I could write jokes and give them to other people. Oh, really? Yeah, initially there was still a fear of it. And it was Dill, oh, okay. I, it was Dill I remember who one day we... Sometimes, you know, we'd finish and go to the chip shop over the road or whatever, and I remember him bailing me up and, and saying... Because this is when Dill was eating chips from a fish and chip shop. It was a long time ago, yeah. yeah. Um, that was yeah, eight, eight, nine years ago, I suppose. And he said, um, you're ready, man. Like, what are you waiting for? Just get up there and do a set. But still, so I was... So it was fear-based. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I'll tell you what... My, mine was as well, because I was hesitant. But yeah, sorry, I cut you off. You're all right. Um... Give me a chance to have some of that sweet, sweet whiskey. <laughs> um, but yeah, so my first gig, as it turned out, I was still, because I'd got to know these guys a little bit there, guys like Johnny Ayub, who's a lovely fellow, yeah. who's not really on the scene anymore, but you know, I always had a lot of time for John and that. So I suppose you built camaraderie with these guys with a common goal, and then you'd watch the deals and those guys who were you could see getting good and, and then go and do their set, and I'd stay every Tuesday night and watch everyone. I'm like, wow, he's. I remember him birthing that joke few weeks back in the thing and now he's done it look that's how it works and but yeah so i still was hesitant to do it in that environment so my first ever real gig was um to us the the mooney valley footy club in front of about 300 people that was your first gig yeah fuck to a pack of klingons at a footy club yeah because i'm harsh i'm just that brand of idiot john i just how was it it was all right i because what had happened was um that guy, Jason Agamanis, the footballer, was meant to be their guest. Yeah. Their guest uh, sportsman. And the week before it or something, my, that gig was April 12th, 2012. So about that time, Jim Steins, the famous Irish footballer, had died. And Agamanis had come out and criticised him in the press. So Mooney Valley were getting calls and threats from crazed Irishmen saying, if that Agamanis gets on stage, we're going to fucking slit his fucking throat. Oh, what a shame they didn't cut his throat because I hate the cunt. Well, see, that was the that was the sentiment, and you don't even know about the Steins, what he said. Anyway. No, I don't know what he said about So I just remember he was on the footy show one day, and he said uh, to to all the homosexuals that play AFL, stay in the closet, we don't want to know about it. And I'm like, fuck you, you prick. Oh, he's he's got pricks smeared all over him, but we're not here to talk about him. So what Talk ha- about whatever you want. <laughs> no, that's enough on Agamanis. I don't care about him. But anyway, so if yeah, not for him, they I rang up, and I- they said we're going to cut your throat if he's there. They rang up the Mooney Valley Sports Club. Now, my little nephew played at Mooney Valley. Um, my brother and that went and watched. And my brother used to do a bit of training with an AFL club. So they're all panicking. Like, what are we going to do? We've got a sportsman's night. We've got no sportsman. What are we going to do? And my brother said, oh, I'll get you Kudafidis, Anthony Kudafidis. 
And these blokes are like, oh, yeah, sure you can, mate. Uh, you're not going to get us Cooter. And he's go, well, hang on. Gave Cooter a call. What are you doing Thursday night? Blah, blah, blah. Because it was short notice. Cooter's like, no problem at all. Fine. So in my little brain, who'd been sitting up every night and writing, writing, writing these puns, because my theory was if I could do 20 jokes in five minutes, it'd give me more opportunities to get a laugh. So yeah. I started doing that. And I had them all, and I rehearsed them all the time, but I was still too shit scared to get up in front of my peers at the lounge. So... I think it was the Wednesday, it was a Thursday gig, I said to my brother, listen, can you ring this organiser guy and tell him you've got a comedian to open the show? And my brother's like, what? What are you talking about, man? He knew I was keen, he, he known me all my life, so he, he wasn't surprised, but he was shocked. He's like, well, I said, yeah, yeah, I want to come and do a gig. And he's going, man, you can't do that. You can't." I said, look, you've got them fucking cutafides. They'll do anything for you. Tell them you've got a fucking comedian to open the show. So he's like, oh, yeah, all right, rings him up. Oh, yeah, but I've got this comedian, Glenn Zend, to open the show. Yeah, all right. So it was cleared. So I got there, and I was I was absolutely shitting myself. I actually wore a peak cap to hide. I used to do that. Well, the peak cap. I used to do it in the beginning. A and then, and then I turned it around after a while. Yeah. <laughs> so I was I sort of revealing, more of, his, or, revealing more of yourself. It's weird, but... Oh, it's just, um, yeah, it's like you're performing in the dark. I prefer bright lights because I can't see them. If you, out of sight, out of mind, right? Yeah. Um, was there an MC that brought you on? Or you yeah, went, yeah. Okay, so the MC brings you on, 300 people. Mm. But just prior to that, like I said, I was out and I had a few bourbon cans of Jim Beam or whatever, shitting myself out in the, I was at a bowling club, so the Mini Valley Bowls Club. So I was out there. Can I press pause? Do you shit yourself literally before a gig like myself? Or you yeah. Don't? Yeah, you get nervous poos. Yeah, yeah. Anything else? Big nervous poo. I pace a lot. Um, I just, whatever else goes on in your mind. Yeah. Hard to hold down a conversation with other people in backstage. Oh, or you're okay I with try that? not to get into them, but I'm happy to be sociable. But when I need to, like if I know I'm next, I'll yeah, I'll pace around out. I'll get out of sight. Yeah. All right. So yeah, go on. You We're back on. Yeah. Sorry. So I'm outside, and there's a few. Oh, we've always recording. It just went into sleep mode. I'm sorry. <laughs> not that well. Yep. We're talking about it's boring. <laughs> Just, it's a, don't worry. So there are a couple of punters there who are going to the show and they're like, oh, so you're a comedian, are you, mate? And there I am dressed in my all black with my hat. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was April and they're like, oh, so you've done a fair bit, have you? I said, oh, yeah, I've done gigs in here and there, mate, yeah. And they're like, oh, did you do comedy first? I'm like, yeah, 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 I've done a few festivals. And I was just shitting myself so much, I just talk shit. So I got up, the MC introduced me, I went out, I grabbed the mic and it didn't work. I know this sounds like a, a falsified story, but that's what happened. It didn't work, and I'm like, Fuck so uh, I'm off to a great start, aren't I? In the meantime, he's fiddling around out the back. Got it working again. I started, and then the dickhead there who was serving the meal, because it was a meal of, meal and show sort of thing, they had a, uh, Rodney Hogg, the cricketer, Cooter, the comedian, <laughs> and that was it. So then some guy starts carving meat. <laughs> with one of those saws you electric use for knife, meat. Yeah, 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 electric knife. Um and so it was a bit odd, but I had me little puns, and, and I don't know if I would ever experience it again, but it felt to me a lot like uh, the the laughs would always start at the same point, like a lady with a shrill sort of laugh over there, and then go like that, like waves. And I said, I think I'll always remember just that feeling of it because I hadn't experienced it as much as I'd made people laugh before, not in a structured, right, it's your turn, mate, out you go. Well, I could probably best explain. I thought the gig went reasonably well. Some people gave me good feedback afterwards and to, I suppose, address the fear element. When I come off and I sat down and Cooter was there at the table because all the stars sat there, <laughs> we had our own little table, I just bawled my eyes out. 
Really? Like fuck, not a good look for the crowd. I had my hat. All right, but like I hadn't for years. Like I think where that's did the how tears come from? My eyes. But I think yeah. <laughs> but I think they'd been pent up for so long that you finally did it. Yeah. Fuck. Like I am weep like that for a long, long time. Wow. And I weren't uh, that unhappy about it. Like it's interesting. And I didn't see it coming. But as soon as I sat down and my brother was there, who you know, I've had a close enough relationship with him for all of my life, my older yeah. brother. Um, and I just, I think it dawned on me that I'd done it, it was over, and I just started howling like a, a school kid. Wow. Um, what a release that must have been. Oh, I've, the feeling, and I've had it in a few gigs since, not of the tear part. I've had a few where I've been a bit emotional, but um, that part where... You, what you do works and you've sort of challenged yourself to do it and you don't it's almost an out-of-body experience you float off stage i'm sure you've dealt with it because you're very good at what you do but those ones where nothing matters nothing could touch you nothing could hurt you and you just seriously you you don't remember walking at the backstage bit you just float Mm. i think that's about a lot deeper stuff than what we're probably even capable of understanding you know so before you said uh what would you think in your opinion makes a good comic what do you need like in terms of uh maturity um seriousness you certainly need an element of seriousness right because you're going out there every single night or four or five nights a week to uh tough crowds mainly during the week there's a lot of comics in the crowd not many audience punters so you've got to have a sense of seriousness which breeds about a certain resilience, right? Yeah, I think it's a lot of contrast. So you need the sense of seriousness, but then you also need to have a sense that you don't, you're not a real fan of the serious. Mm. <laughs> you know, as much as you need to be it to do it. Like, I'm, I, in my, personally, I don't really like serious things that much. I'm not a big news watcher. I don't get political. I don't, you know, do stuff like that because... That child in me, and I think that's an important part of it. The inner child is what's doing it. And most people, like people who've never done comedy, like, you know, those people, they've grown up when they were 12. Mm. And now they're, they're real grown-ups. It's like, you don't even think, you know, like my neighbours or someone, you know, it's not even similar to my way of thinking. I'm looking for the ludicrous in everything to cope with the serious things that I don't want to deal with, I guess. So that's how you offset it. That's how you deal with it, by offsetting it, something serious with something ridiculous. Does that help you in your line of work day to day? Because you, you, are you a mental health worker? Sorry to like... No, that's right. Jump wherever you jump want. Jump the gun. Is that, is that what you do? Mental I work health? in a homeless shelter, yeah. All right. Yeah. And do you, does that help diffuse situations? You, the, like Absolutely. Being comical? Absolutely. Without a shadow of a doubt. And some of those guys are hilarious. Some of them, because they've got nothing to lose. They don't care. Some of the little things I'll say at times, are, I'm not a big laugher, they get me. They're good. Yeah, and they're, they're just broken people like a lot of comics are hanging around. Is there, is there a pattern that you see? Like if I was to ask you a question, which is kind of difficult to answer, I don't expect you to, but what what are the ingredients to break a human being or a human spirit? Have you seen certain traits that have broken these individuals? Yeah. What, what are they? Um, it's like we're playing... I could put it in one. Drugs? One. Heartbreak, John. Heartbreak. They don't recover from that. 
then yeah. they might use drugs or whatever else to cope. To cope, to comfort. Because in a lot of the cases, they don't have a solid support crew like family or anyone who gives a fuck or they've burnt those people too many times by developing a habit that then gets them to steal or deceive or the things that addicts do Fuck. in a lot of cases. But if I had to put it, I've been doing that for 15 years. Yep. Um, heartbreak. Is that the core of all? Holy fuck. And what percentage would be male to female? I only work with males. It's a male shelter. Okay. I believe, and I talk to other colleagues at other places, and we get a lot of phone calls and stuff. I, I, in my mind, imagine somewhere across the other side of town there's an equivalent female shelter with equivalent females with equivalent sort of issues Yeah, going on. There must be. There has to be. I don't think it, it differentiates between the, the genders or anything. So what? So do you have to counsel them to deal with the heartbreak without the drugs, or and then is that what you do essentially, and help them essentially training wheels, put them back into a house or a hut? It's interesting you say training wheels because quite often I say to them, and I think one of the most important points is when they first get there how they get greeted. Now during the day there's a team of all sorts of caseworkers and all sorts of people. I'm an after hours worker, so I go in like four o'clock in the afternoon when everyone else goes home. And we have to have two on shift. So, um, you know, we I've changed uh, work sites recently, but there was we had 64 beds. So it's two of us, 64 guys. So you want to make sure you got the mood right or you're probably in a bit of strife. So it's more setting that. Like I love serving dinner. I serve dinner there and I make it an enjoyable experience because I think dinner time should be. Oh, fuck yeah. Can I just ask you, um, so there's 64 beds in this shelter. Yep. Is it sixty four rooms? Sixty four. They all got a room, yeah. Okay. Um, do do they have that room every night or? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And then they can stay. It used to be a tight three months. COVID's changed a lot of that. Um, but they can stay. And then part of it is to, to their caseworkers are trying to help them with their addictions or whatever if they want the help. Some aren't ready, and then they are also there to help them get some housing. That's the ultimate goal. And get them ready to get that housing. As you said about the training wheels, I say to a lot of new guys, listen, mate, we're sort of like mechanics for people. You've rolled in here, you're a bit busted up. We're going to change your points and plugs. We're going to give you a bit of a shine and we'll polish. We're going to, you know, put some new fuel in you and we're going to we're going to get you and roll you back out in the road. So it's not permanent, but we can we can help to fix you if you if you want to let us. And what's the what's the success rate yeah, percentage wise? Slim. Really? They yeah, it depends they... on the individual. Like some are ready, some aren't. It, it's usually obvious. Like um, we've had a few because a, a few of the conditions changed, so the housing was more available because of COVID, which was kind of a good thing. And like in the last six months or so, we've had some some good sort of results of mm. guys. And then, but some of them they they do that. They get it all the boxes ticked. They go to housing and then they're back the next month because they couldn't quite couldn't quite do it. Right, so you get a few that revolve back around. Oh, heaps. I said for fifteen years, I've built some relationships with people I, I I met fifteen years ago, and they're still in that that hamster wheel. Wow, it's round and round and round, and they can't get out. And it, it's easy from the outside with anyone who you see's got an issue, whatever it may be. But to get into the heart of that human to help them, you can't really. You can, but they're the ones who've got to make the firm decision. This is it. I've had enough of this lifestyle. So you can work out pretty quickly whether someone's going to be, whether you're going to be able to help someone or not, whether what they contribute back to the table with you. 
if they're dead behind the eyes and not interested, it's, you're, you're talking to a robot that you're never going to convince them. Some, yeah, they're, they're unfortunately too far gone. Some you see, yeah, with a bit of tweaking, he might be right. Um, and we're pretty tricky sort of creatures, us humans. Like the some, they will surprise you or whatever. But I, I said I think it's important to get in early and, and I talk very straight to them. I talk very real to them. Yeah, I've had them say, I don't like hearing this, bro. This is, this is, you're touching too close to home, mate. I said, well, you're 38 years old, mate. If you don't get it through to you now, you're going to kick yourself when you're my age that you didn't sort of pull your finger out and have, you've been given a chance here, mate. This is, it's now up to you, but yeah, and the next day you get to work and they're being chucked out because they, deal went wrong and they belted someone or stabbed them or whatever happened. Have you had anyone come back um, completely like, in a, in a home, in a job, yeah. and years later going, yeah, thanks, yeah. dude. Yeah, we've had a few. One come, bought his, like... That'd feel good. Bought That's his like wife and kid. Crushing a gig, isn't it? That's bought, his, bought his wife and gig. Completely different feeling, but the same sort it's of... Beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Occasionally you get a, what I would call a success story. And yeah, it's a, it's a lovely, beautiful feeling. Does that make it... Is it moments like that that make it worthwhile through the shit? Because it's like st with stand-up, it's like, oh, you do a really great gig and you feel the love and then you mm. can do a few cold ones <laughs> and you just feed off the warmth and love from that gig in your mind. Um, is it like that with what you do? You're, like, you, you're, you're trying to get through to people. You, you have days on end where it's not getting through and then you meet someone that comes in and says, thanks a lot, Glenn, you helped me. I'm no longer, you know, I've got my life together. You wouldn't survive if you only relied on them because there's never been that many of that high level of success i'm more for the small victory right in the moment victory where a guy will come and tell me he hasn't used for two weeks yeah and he had a raging habit and i'm like nice work man how do you feel yeah oh i feel good well let's just go a day at a time and all the stuff that they learn in there from people much more qualified than me you know that one day at a time and the things you learn in aa and those sort of places um and yeah that like i said i know people in my real life who have similar or whatever issues, but they have the support of family or whatever that keeps going. I mean, some of our guys have got jobs. They live in a shelter, but they go off and they go to their job. And how long is the shelter allocated to them for? Three months? Depending on behaviour, yeah. I said COVID sort of changed it up a bit, so um, a couple of guys at the moment have been there for about a year. Is the state doing enough or not enough? Or is it a good... I know this sounds stupid, but is this a good place to be homeless or... Melbourne? Yeah. Is the system sturdy, supportive, or... There's a lot of help out there. There's a lot of help out there if you're willing to take the steps. Yeah. You know, but some also are reluctant. They don't want to. They stay a few days and you just can sense they're not, they're not going to stay around. You can tell. And they don't because, as odd as it may sound, they prefer living on the streets and doing it that way. Yeah. Like I said, originally, it's to do with heartbreak and then... We're all people, John. They've got pride as well. They don't, you know, they don't want to have the hand out. They don't want to do mm. that. And, and and some of them have amazing... So you've got to be tactful. Like stubbornness or... Yeah, I like to crack them. Yeah. Like to get through to the real human inside, which is part of what comedy does as well, I guess. Well, that's exactly right. So you use your humour... Yeah, not bits as such, but... No, you don't go in with a tight five. Like, <laughs> like, fucking... Yeah, and I don't. I also don't tell them that I do comedy. That's not. Yeah, you know, that's a separate part of my life. I'm yeah. there. To, I'm there to do that job, and it's not about me and the ego or anything like that. I just want to, uh, and I, I love it. It's great. Like I said, you get your little breakthroughs, and they help. And like I've just had a few days. I've 
I'm back to work tomorrow and I can't wait because there's certain individuals who I'm, oh, I wonder how so-and-so, I won't drop names, but I wonder how he's going or whatever. And Some project you might have left them with, I quite often lend them or recommend them movies and books and stuff like that. We've got a little library there and I'll, I'll you know, get into the reading and just distracting techniques, I guess, to get them out of their, their own head and their own whatever's going on with them. And it's nice. That's good, man. It's a good feeling. Well, I used to have my own cafe. I've worked probably 100 different jobs, hospitality, and I would much rather put my energy into helping people that need it than some uptight bitch who's asking, where's the tomato I ordered in this salad? Yeah, that's soul-destroying. Yeah, I can't do that anymore. I get that at my work. I pour beers part-time, and yeah, I'll get people going, you forgot the sugar in the coffee. I'm like, fucking grow up. Seriously. People get their living in boxes, you fucking cunt. Sorry, well, that's where. Yeah, no, that's what I said to her. <laughs> <laughs> if only. Um, well, I had to stop because I got to the point in real work where I was saying those things because, you know, my filter's not that great at times. So you tried the hospitality angle. You even Did you run a, cafe, run a cafe or owned a cafe? or I ran my own little one prior to doing this work and then I had a break from the work and went back to it and I still couldn't do it. But yeah. when I was younger, like I said, I ran away with the circus and then I spent... About six years, I travelled a lot, so I spent five, six years in Darwin, which was restaurants, bars, casino, um, wherever, like at some one point I had two or three jobs at the same time. I always like to keep myself busy, just to, you know, so that I'm not going down those dark dark pathways, I guess. Um, how, do you, how does someone run away with the circus? What has to happen in their life for them to run away <laughs> with the circus? <laughs> Probably the same answer to the other question, John, heartbreak. Heartbreak. So you had your heart... Heartbreak's got a lot to do, I think, with, with anyone sort of... Well, every fucking second song on radio is about heartbreak or some shit like that. Penny on the station, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I listened to the jazz station. But yeah, um, I said I'd had a... I'd actually studied to be a teacher. I was uh, did two years of teacher's college and then... High school or primary? Did primary. You, you wanted to go primary. Yeah, yeah. That's good. Before the devil gets to him. Well, yeah, I think to, to hopefully. And I, I did teaching rounds and all that, and I loved it. And it was always, Glenn, you have a really, really good rapport with the children, but we just need you to stay on the script. So you would veer off the curriculum and, <laughs> oh, <fuck yeah. laughs> and stand on the table like Robin Williams and teach your own I, shit? That, I, just, that was always the feedback I got. What would be your curriculum? Like, what would be, if, if you had free reign in this creative school in Byron Bay and it was like Mr. <laughs> I don't know. I, good morning Mr. Zan what are they learning well I've is since Plato or is it I've since been told long after the event of me taking academic leave in about 1987 which I'm still enjoying um I've often been told about like oh Glenn you'd be so good in Steiner schools I'd never fucking heard of a Steiner school they, when I was there. Yeah. I think yeah, where you teach more to the ability than the curriculum, so every kid gets what works for you. So if you're a song and dance man, you're doing it through song and dance. If you're a mathematician, we're going to go with maths. If you're science, we're going to let you blow shit up. <laughs> I think it's it's more catered to the individual rather than the Victorian cursive script and the you know what we had was the workbook of right. This is what you get into their little heads. And I didn't agree with that then when of I was course. 18. When yeah. I was at school, I didn't. How I got through school is probably a minor miracle because I didn't really study or do much. I'd, and I didn't agree with teachers, which was also part of the humour thing because they're like, yeah, you're talking shit. The boys need a laugh. Hang on. Uh, whatever. It's hard for comedians to 
find their groove outside of their craft in day-to-day work because I put my mouth, I, I, put, I fucked up a lot at work um, with the odd comment here and there because uh, we're always trying to be funny. So, mm. yeah, I could understand that. Um, so you, you qualified as a primary school teacher? No, I did I did two years Yep. and then took academic leave, which was supposed to be for a year. Because you didn't like the way they were teaching you? No, nah, I think I'd, I'd done teaching rounds, which in my mind were quite successful and the, the teacher in the class we went to Maroopna up near Shepparton and did it there was like they sent three or four of us from the college so we stayed in oh, I wish I could remember better sometimes we stayed in some dodgy little caravan park outside Maroopna went to the school every day and taught and my reports from the teachers and that were good and then one of your lecturers from Bendigo would come up and see you and that was what I was left with was yes you have a great report with the children but we just questioned, and I weren't swearing. What were they questioning? It wasn't inappropriate. It just wasn't sticking to the script. Your method, your method of teaching, and what you were teaching. Yeah, and I can't even remember. Like you can't I, remember I wasn't what? trying to teach them things that they weren't ready to learn or whatever. I think it was just I weren't just going. Okay, class, one time. onto the blackboard. Yeah, in in yeah, eighteen ninety or whatever. Christopher Columbus drove his boat here and this happened and the natives got him or whatever you're talking about i think i was just like i'm probably doing in this conversation going off on tangents and like i said not inappropriate not not anything of course not yeah that you, that you shouldn't just teach fi- children finding your own creative way and like probably with humor as well where i'd be if the kid wanted to get up and i'd let them or encourage them to express themselves when it in the 80s there it wasn't really what they wanted you to do. So I wanted them to be individuals. They wanted them as a collective to learn the same thing. Like the thing that's always, and you probably hear this from a lot of comedians, like in life, you know, did you go to school with kids who they did their school, they finished their school, they went and got a job in the bank and they're still fucking there. Mm. Like I've never understood that that could be your life. Like really? You went to the bank when you were 19, I'm 54. You're still at the bank. I'm sure you got a few nice promotions, and you probably got your own fucking car park. But Jesus Christ, how do you fucking sleep at night? Like, yeah, wife, three kids, fence, and all that shit. That's a big fear of dog. yours, isn't it? Like, there's no variety or spice. I wish my life was more organised to the point where I could have a dog. That would make me happy. Is that all you want? No, nah, that's not all I want. But that, like, you'd I love said, to have a dog. Why in can't my, you have with a dog? my hours and that, I live by myself. I can't have a dog. I don't have a fence. <laughs> but right. I, I wouldn't. Just, I wouldn't want to leave a dog by itself. How long are you away for, though? One uh, day I'll get a dog. Yeah. Eight-hour shifts, four times eight. Can't you take the dog? Nah. They'd love the dog. Yeah, no, we have... Men's a broken heart. We have visits from mental health dogs, officially ones, but there's been some dramas over a staff member who was bringing a dog, and it was a kind of a thing. <laughs> was it biting the homeless? <laughs> was it a, homeless were biting it. Was no, it, it was, so was that a fucking liberal dog? It was just one of those, you know, some dogs you can't want to. This is all taxpayer to. money, you're... But it was running around on desks and dropping turds around the place and stuff. Yeah, it was like, a liberal dog screaming. Is that what they do? Barking, get a job. Yeah, yeah. Just being a cunt. Yeah, being a dog. And it wasn't, yeah, it didn't work. So um, I expected I would jump around a bit. So that was that. And I I finished the teaching. And while I was there, I was a pizza delivery boy for a few bucks. So then I went and worked full time at the pizza shop. And then, because uh, I was always young in school. So once I turned 18 and got my license, because I went to college, I was 17 and a half. Because um, they sent me off to school early, just in those days the numbers were weren't down up or something. So I was born in July, so yeah, I was always the youngest one. Um, and then I, I went, did pizzas, did nightclubs, 
worked in a few different bars, and then the guys who owned the bar bought a pizza shop, and they wanted me to run that. So I was just my whole life. I was busy. I rode my push bike everywhere, um, and then in about I was twenty one, twenty two, and I had a pretty ideal life for a kid that age. I had um, what psychiatrists described as a, a complete nervous breakdown, and uh, went to a psychiatric centre which then sort of changed the whole course of my life. Was this because of heartbreak? I think it was tied in there. I mean, I'd been only pot. I hadn't done much else in the way of drugs. I drank and stuff like any person working in a nightclub would. Had a ball. I was sort of like the self-appointed entertainer of the people I knew. I was having a great life. No, I actually got the shit beaten out of me. Um, at, at 21? Yeah, like pretty badly. This is before you went... I've got the scar on my lip. I can see <laughs> from that. From where my, my tooth went through it. But I got the shit beaten out of me. And now I can look back, and I've never done comedy on it, but I can look back on the experiences like I'm cool with it. But um, I took off, and I lived in a sort of a party house, and, and it happened there. And then I ran off, and one of my good friends who I live with... So I often think... Well, not often, but I have thought... Like, how did people relay news then? Because we didn't have mobile phones or nothing like that. It was the middle of the night. I'd had a great night at work. I actually, I said I'd smoked a bit of weed here and there, but I weren't. And I weren't sleeping. And I think it was partly to do with, like, sleep's important. Sleep deprivation will fuck your brain up completely. So I think it was a bit of that. So I don't, it wasn't drug-induced psychosis as such, as, as much as what it was sleep deprivation. And I was just so excited. I'd been offered the... So heartbreak to, to, plus sleep deprivation. I don't know if heartbreak was in it at that point. Okay, so sleep I've known a few girls in that, but maybe deeper suited heartbreak from earlier things in life. But not, no, nah, I wouldn't think so. And I like this isn't about homelessness. This is about basically losing your mind. So I got. So you, you if, if, forgive me if I'm prying. Just tell me. To no, pull. I started it. Did you <laughs> at 21? Did you like lose your mind? Is not as that, far as I thought. I thought I was doing it right. The beat up didn't help. Yeah. Getting beaten up. And then um, one of my good friends who I live with come after me. And by that stage of the night, for whatever reason, I was just wearing a pair of red undies and heading up the road. And I'd had an odd sort of week. Like stuff was happening where so, I was. So you're naked except for a pair of red undies. Yeah, but then we sort of. Walking up the street. You remind me of Richard Pryor when he was freebasing running down the road on fire. But then we sort of scrapped a bit. And in that scrap, he, the undies come off. So I was nude. Right. And then I ran up the road. You, were you aware of your faculties at that moment? I remember it like it was yesterday. And what was going through your head? I'm walking on the street naked. That's fine. What wasn't going through my head? No, I was running. I was heading for the moon. It's a really big moon that night. So you thought I could run to the moon naked? No, nah, I was just heading towards it. I weren't right. thinking I could get there. Like I was still, as odd as it may sound, there was still some logic there. So I went and... Yeah. Yeah, sure there was. No, there was. No, no, and no, I went. It's... it's um, I went and I just wanted to be left alone. Like I had blood pissing out of me and all that, and you know, tooth through my lip and a few other injuries. And I, I ran up um, to where there was a bike race. There wasn't one at that time because it was like three in the morning. But there was a velodrome, and I, I remember going around and I'd seen sort of the cops come around a the corner there. So I ducked around the corner pretty quick and just dived through, you know, the barbed wire that comes back like that, with the three. And I just dived through that, so got a bit more bark and stuff off me through that. And I went and sat in the pavilion where you'd watch a race if it was on, but it was the middle of the night. And I was sort of happy. I was like, 
okay, I can just collect my thoughts and work out yep. what I'm going to do next. I can't really go back home because that's where it happened. Where can I go? I just want to sit here. It's dark. like. And then <laughs> there's some funny elements of it. The, the cops come in. Obviously, someone from home had called or whatever that there's some dude running around naked or, or the people I lived with called and were concerned, which is fair. And Well, yeah, you've left the house in red underwear. I didn't, don't even like red. So if they like Strange you, they're going to make, no make wear, a call. I no longer wear red underwear anyway. But um, yeah, they weren't my favourite jocks. And I um, I, I still remember the cops were driving around and around the velodrome where the cyclists went. And, and I was a, you know, a bit out there. But as they're driving around, and I'd be sort of like, all right. And they're shining the torch. They're there, there, everywhere but me. <laughs> and it was like I was, okay, I was mental. But I was controlling them because they'd drive... And I'd be like, stop, and they'd stop. Go there, go there, go back that way, they would. And I had enough of it to a point where I said, all right, here I am. And bang, they shone a light on me, they come up and proceeded to beat me with batons. Oh, wow, they beat you up? Fuck. I was a little resistant. Okay, fair enough. Like, what do you fucking cunts want? Leave me alone. And also, this I just, is... I'm going to go before the fucking sun comes up. I just need time, look at me. Look at me, do you really think... Because one of them was good cop, bad cop. One of them was got the baton out and the other one was trying to be nice. And I'm like, mate, do you really think I give a fuck if you're going to hit me with that fucking thing? Look at me, mate. Don't you think that I've already had fucking enough tonight? Like, mm. come on, you fucking cunt. Or whatever choice words I decided to use to him, which would have been fairly accurately that. And you are, you, you remember this clearly. Oh, fuck yeah. Yeah. And then he uh, you know, gave me a few and I, I got up and like I just attacked and then next thing there was more police cars or whatever else. And my next memory, I was in the cop shop. And then all of some of my own clothes had arrived. And I thought, ah, they've been to my house. Or some of my house had been here. But by then I was, I was fully, I'd jumped that little or big step into a, another reality almost. So I'd never had, you know, Is mushrooms or LSD or anything like that at that point. Is it a reality you can describe? Like, w w did you believe like people were against you or plotting against you, or just fully manic and and like, like there's some dude in the cell with me who I'm sure hasn't recovered from that night. Like he was my buddy. I figured he was with me, and he must have just freaked the fuck out. And I'm sure as we sit here, he's probably sitting there telling his wife of thirty years. There was this one night I got locked out for drinking, and they put this cunt in the cell with me. Holy shit! I remember because I was just like, you don't remember what I remember saying. the fear in his eyes. I can, but I won't get into it. Okay. Um, and I was, I was having some, <laughs> some difference. Nothing threatening, just some outer-worldly thoughts and experiences. Let's say it was probably the best way to put it, as if I had had shrooms or something, but I hadn't. So, and it, when I look back, and I'll cut this story to an end in a minute. But when I when I look back on it. Same. It had to happen to slow me down. Like when I eventually ended up in the nuthouse and one of the psychiatrists who I had known years earlier, um, he said to me, look, man, when you come in here, you're doing about 500. He said, the average person should go along at about 100. He said, mm. you're doing fucking 500, mate. And I, I, was, I, was an ex I was an excitable lad. Like it was just as much. Like I, I was really happy a few days before. I was happy when it happened. And then some weird stuff would start happening. Like I could... I talked to someone, and it was as if, it was as if, and this might sound trippy, but I could read their thoughts and stuff, and it was a bit too much for me to handle. But I could, like at that time, 
and there was sort of elements of psychic sort of stuff there which I couldn't handle. How do you reconcile that now? Do you look back and go, actually, I think I may have touched the sensory perception of being psychic or, nah, I was just fucked? First one. Yeah, right. Yeah, because sometimes even, even sometimes now, like when I'm in a sort of good space mentally and stuff, and we're all a bit mental, um, I'll know what song's coming on the radio next or something. Now, I know that sounds outlandish and... No oh, fucking you know, the experience, but sometimes you ever watch Powerball? <laughs> Every like, fucking week, man, doesn't work. Doesn't work no? with numbers. Damn. Mm. But I, yeah, I was. There was things, and leading up to it, which you don't, you're not aware of at the time. But there were things, probably warning signals or whatever. Like I said, I'd had one of the best days ever before it. Um, the night it happened, I'd worked at the nightclub and gone home, and. Uh, a girl I knew had followed me home and hopped in the window and I wouldn't have anything to do with it. Um, like I, I wasn't into her and she wanted to and that's how it sort of started, you know, the, the next part of it where I woke people up and turned into a fight and, excuse me, got beaten up. Okay. But there was just weird stuff happening that night at nightclub, like with who was there and um, some old school friends had popped up who I hadn't seen for years. But it was like I was almost directing as if it was a play like one of my mates there who who never ever had any luck with chicks got a hand job at the bar like and it was <laughs> it was as if i'd set that up you know whether or not i was warped but i did introduce them and stuff like that and there was just stuff wonderful stuff happening certainly in my mind and i, and I didn't know at the time but i was just increasing 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 um, to like I said when I got in there and what happened how I ended up in there because I'm probably rambling John, no, no, um, was I was either I could be charged with assaulting police or go involuntary into the psych centre so I chose that option because I didn't want a police record or anything what did they say to you when you well, how did they diagnose you they couldn't they there was everything I was um Maybe you just needed a and few nights sleep. And this was the 90s, yeah, probably. They gave me, they jabbed me with something which put me to sleep for a fucking while. And, and I remember, like, a part of the diagnosis. I'd have it on a bit of paper somewhere. But I was, uh, I'd had an extreme, I was a workaholic who'd had an extreme nervous breakdown. I was manic. I was pre-morbid. I was, every single possible term you could think of just about, they'd, they'd painted me with. And then, it, it was all right in there. Once I got used to it. Because when I woke up, like when I got in there, I remember they jabbed me with something. I was strapped to the bed and, you know, woke up. I don't know how long I was asleep for. And my first thing was, I've got to go to work. I've got to go to work. I've got to go to the pizza shop at four. They're like, mate, you won't be going to work for a while. Mm. And I was in the cell. I don't call them cells, but in the thing. And they just had the little window. So they'd come and observe me. And then you move into a share. Was it padded? Yeah. And then I moved into a share with another dude. And then into a room with four, and then into your own little room in the, in the time I was there. What's going through your mind that in that when you're shifting rooms and they're looking through you a window? What's going through your mind then? Like, holy fuck! Like, what am I doing in here? Heartbreak. Heartbreak, <laughs> right? <laughs> Which might explain why I do what I do. Um, but yeah, I remember. So it was all from a girl, and I was freaked out, man. So it was all, the heartbreak was emanating from a from a breakup, a bad yeah. breakup. No, no, in there, the heartbreak was I didn't have my life anymore. I was trapped. I was gone. I was locked up. Was I ever going to get out? 
Okay. Along with my friends at the time, thought that's it. We're never going to see him again. He's going to live his life out in. Well, uh, if you told he, him, he ain't, he ain't coming back from this. If you told him you can see the future, they would never fucking leave you. Let you not out. in the late eighties in Bendigo, no. But it was. I'm now glad it happened. I don't really have much stigma about it. Otherwise, I probably hey, wouldn't talk about it. I think it's serving you well for treating people and helping them because, in a sense, you've walked maybe not a mile in their shoe, but you. I you, ran. Yeah. <laughs> You ran, ran a mile in their jocks, mate. <laughs> in uh, red underwear in their shoes. So you can sort of, it's serving you well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, and not, that, like, it's not like you're a private school kid that's working with homeless people. You know sure. what I mean? Like yeah. you've, you've. Um, and I have worked with private school people and it doesn't work for them. Yeah. Because these guys, as much as we think we're qualified and we can read the homeless and that, they read us and I tell new staff all the time, they read us far fucking better than we read them. They read us like a fucking see-through book. Well, I, I don't have any diminutive opinion of them. I think they're just, yeah, like it's anything can go wrong in a moment's notice to render you homeless. It's like that. It can be fast. Oh, yeah. And if I didn't have a nice family or whatever, I would be. And then, like I said, so that went on. I stayed in that room for a little while with the little window. I remember some lady used to come and flash her tits at me at the window. Like weird stuff happens in there. That's nice. You never saw her, John. Oh. Um <laughs> I couldn't see them too low for the window. But the, but I got to know the other, let's call them inmates, I got to know them well. And we had group therapies and we played carpet bowls and you'd have your spare time. I remember one of the bouncers who I was good buddies with come and visited me one day and I remember he was just like one of the toughest cunts I've ever met. I won't say his name, not that it matters now, but yeah, you know, he's six foot four, redhead, crazy big bouncer. And we used to drink in that after work and, he, I remember him, he was like, ball on his eye. He was just like, oh, mate, why did this happen to you? You're the nicest guy I've ever met. I can't believe it. And I was like, mate, I'll be all right. And then, obviously, you can see where this is leading. I'd spent my time in there. A girl I'd gone to school with and had gone out with a mate of mine who was in our sort of social crew just out of school, she was a nurse there. And it was very odd when she, oh, fucking hell, Glenn, what are you doing here? She obviously read my file and everything and I was there. What happened was I had to be, when you in those times, when you're involuntary, I think it was six weeks, and they had to, um, you had to get examined by a board. So I had a board of like Victoria's main psychiatrists, five or six of them, sitting around and firing questions and that at oh, me. Oh, fuck, like Shawshank. To basically, what happens in Shawshank? Oh, uh, the parole board. You kind of like that. Go ahead, Sonny, sign that form. I don't give a damn. Yeah, and basically to prove my sanity to them and go. And I still remember um, one of them saying, you know, what's happened to you? He said, you, you, he said that your destiny's now in your hands and you won't understand this for 10 years, but one day you will. And then there was some element of it where once I'd had that mental examination, if I didn't have a physical examination from a doctor within six hours, I could walk. So I knew that this girl who was a nurse had worded me up on that. Okay. So I went missing. Um, at some point, I'd try to break out of there and break my ankle jumping off the roof. But I think I went back to the roof to hide. And then I got out. And then I went back into my mum's care um, at home. And because towards the end of it too, they were giving me meds, which is interesting now because I give out those same meds to some of my clients at work or I see them or I've heard them or I read their files. And it's like, I remember that one, I remember that one. And there was one particular med which I've read up and it's fairly full on. I'm like, ooh, that's what they had me on. Oh, yeah, okay, I kind of get it. Mm. Just a massive sedative. Yeah, but then I got to the point where they'd give it to you in the dosette thing, I'd ha under my tongue out, spit them out. Just I, like the movies. But I don't agree with 
you know, like I've had friends kill themselves on antidepressants. I've had people say I should be on those over the years. No thanks. I'd rather go through things and, and I'm still here at this point. But some meds, no. There's other ways. There's more holistic ways to heal, which we haven't got long enough to get into. I completely agree with you. But anyway, so I was set free to my mum's with a dosette, which I didn't have. And I remember my mum was like, Did you, oh. sorry to interrupt, did you have an element of fear when you faced the board? I just wanted to see. Nah, you, zero. Zero fear. So you weren't, okay, so I just wanted to see what sort of, w- take a pulse of your reality check at well, that moment. Because well, if you're fearful, you'd be like, fuck, I've got to get out of here. If well, they fail whole, me, I'm stuck. My, my whole, my whole life, like you just think I'm some country kid, I'm a pretty peaceful guy, I like making people happy, I work hard, I have fun, I smoke a bit of pot on weekends. Have a few drinks here and there, but I was, you know, rode my bike. I went to the gym. I was pretty well. One would have thought, and I was basically existing to please others, like to make people happy in my work, in my home, in wherever. If you were to talk to someone from those days, they would. They well, would, you still do that you know. now. You, well, you, you make people <laughs> laugh. You want to make them happy, and nice you're feeling. trying to fix people during the day and get them back on track. Yeah, maybe, but um, so well, aren't you? You are. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. Um, so I went and stayed at mum's and I remember mum, she's like, oh, you know, my mum's a, a lovely lady. And she was like, oh, your ankle's starting to get a bit better. You're starting to feel, she goes, look what I saw in the paper that circus is coming to town and they're looking for labourers, just casual labourers. You could go out there, you could earn a few bucks and get a bit fit. Cause I, you know, obviously hadn't worked for a while, so I didn't have any money. So I was all right at mum's, but I was like, and I was like, oh yeah, okay. And I, so I went out in this Friday morning or whatever it was to the circus grounds and there was like 200 blokes there big burly bricklayer looking guys and all that and me in my yellow and gold Aussie 69 shirt and I'd, I was skinny as fuck then because I didn't really eat much in the place and I was just I'd sort of gone off eating a bit and I'd never been so trim I was like and I was mum's like hey, go out there get a bit fit and a few bucks so there's all these blokes and this guy comes out, this little scrawny fella with the typical like you'd see in a cartoon with the other ones and the cigarette hangs sideways out their mouth like that. Yeah. And it, they don't really touch it, but it, they keep smoking it. Yeah. Very impressive skill. Very hard uh, to yeah, do. Yeah, it just sticks to the lip. Yeah. And it sort of bounces up and down when they talk and smoke goes in and out of it, but they don't really seem to There's go. There's some <laughs> adhesive process that happens with the, the with the bottom lip and the cigarette tip and just enough saliva makes it stick. Uh. Okay. Yeah. So Gordon was onto something. Anyway, you, so, let it, you, could, you could just like relax your lip and it'll hang. It won't fall the smoke. Yeah. So this little prick comes out and he goes, right, you, 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 and you, the rest of you can fuck off. And I was in the was fuck that, off category. Was that the interview process? Yeah. I think he just picked the biggest blokes. Well, it's a circus. You can't expect anything rational. Yeah. That was very rhythmic. So I was in the fuck off pile and I didn't have nothing to do. So I sat there and watched them put up the tent. So you know, everyone, you know, grumbles and fucks off. Some of these guys were probably had families and were keen for a buck. So I just thought, oh well, I'm not gonna. I'll just stay here and watch them put it up. And I'm still in a bit of a weird headspace, as in getting back into society and real people. And because I'd been, I went somewhere. I can't remember. Went maybe to where I had worked at a nightclub, or at, and I just all the people that were pointing and oh, there's that fucking crazy guy who tried to kill a cop. Oh, and there was a lot of that fuck. small town stuff. Is that what stuff. the story became? Oh, fuck yeah. Yeah, there was a lot the of... guy in red underwear running up the street. I don't know if the underwear got to mention. It was just more about... I mean, it was a small town. Nothing happened there. And it was like, yeah, there's a the guy that tried to kill a cop. 
that was the thing. Right. A friend of mine had been to a party in Melbourne or something, and there were people from Bendigo there. And to me, in those days, Melbourne was ooh Melbourne, and um, they they they'd heard it at a party there, and I was like, oh, really? Like they're talking about? It? And I'd I'd been to the nightclub, and like I'd seen people I knew as regulars or whatever who were then. Yeah, and it was a very odd time to try to assimilate back into normal life. So the circus made sense, and Mum was great. But anyway, so. I'm watching them put the tent up and that, and it's hard work. And they get to like the morning smoko, and there's this big, tall, skinny guy talking to the boss. And he's like, <laughs> So he fucks off. And the boss is, ah, You're still here, are you, mate? All right, you can make a start. So I'm like, Fuck yeah. So my ankle was still a bit sore, but I just worked my ass off. I'm not a skilled, you know, knot tire or anything like that. I just listened and ran with these dollar boards, which you'd used to set up the seating. and put that pole up, climb up there, do this. I worked my ring off for the week for <laughs> 290 bucks. Got to the end of the week, finished. Ken Bullen, who owned the Bullen Safari Parks, was the guy who owned the tent and employed us, basically. He's not the guy that went, you, 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 and you. That was Gordon, um, the tent boss. And at the end of the week, Ken goes, there you go, and gave us our money in an envelope, 290 He's going, so, you're single? I said, yeah. You got any commitments? I said, no. Do you want to come with us? I said, yeah. Perfect. Went home. <laughs> hey, mum. Hi, oh, Glenn. How was your week at the circus? Oh, it was great. You know, I got this money. And, uh, I'm leaving with them tomorrow at six. She's like, oh, no, no. I didn't want to. It was only for a week. And basically, she knew she wouldn't be seeing me again for a while. How long did you stay away with the circus? Well, I stayed away with the circus for... The, um, a year we went all around Australia, all around the six of us made it from start to finish. And in a nutshell, can you distill that into a few words? Was it rock and roll? Was it awesome? Or was it fucking hell? Or was it a mixture of both? It was what changed me from a boy to a man. And can you. I was the only one without a tattoo. There was brawls every night. Guys, you know, with obviously habits then, I think a few of them were speed freaks. We didn't have ice then, but I weren't. I didn't smoke or anything then because I'd been. I was very straight. I'd get a bottle of wine off my old Czechoslovakian boss for two bucks. I'd go sit in the hill somewhere, pop it open with my thumb, and then just drink it and think about life. And I wrote a lot. I wrote a lot then. Uh, stand up? No, no. Just more journal. More, yeah, journal and sort of a, a deeper stuff, I suppose. Trying to understand what I'd like. If anyone gets locked up in a nut house, I would suggest run away with the circus is a really good way to come out of it. Because they weren't normal people, they weren't normal times. You're busy, you're sleeping well because you're working from sun up till sundown. You're getting badly fed, which wasn't. A, but we'd go out after and have meals. But yeah, it was perfect sort of antidote for what I'd been through. And then I got to the end of that, which was the year we finished in Perth. Uh, I had some buddies in Perth from school. I stayed there for a while. Couldn't like as soon as you mentioned you were born in Victoria, you couldn't get a job. Came back to Bendigo. Still, I was here, and oh, that guy tried to kill. Cops back. Still, that's, that's only a year in a small town. Oh, okay. If I went back there now, around the wrong neighbourhoods, I'd probably. There's yep. that fucking. <laughs> been thirty fucking years, mate. What are you doing? <laughs> um, and then I'd had friends who'd branched out from school and that and gone to Darwin, so I went to Darwin just to catch up with them, to catch up, and got offered a job. Like you know, there were jobs around. Got a job at the casino, and stayed there. And, and basically, next thing I know, I'd been gone for like sixteen years. I did Darwin, then I went to 
Ayers Rock because I had a friend there, so I went to visit and I went to Darwin. See, that's probably when the heartbreak in my life came in because I was in my 20s and Darwin, you know, I was working at a casino. I was early 20s. I got to know a lot of girls and relationships and what normal people, I guess, do in their 20s. Then I'd get a heartbreak and move to the next town or move to the next job or just... Why run? Run away from yourself. Ah, you, okay, you took the... Which none of us can do, but a lot of us try. Yeah. So See, yeah, the circus was the start of the run. Like, Unless you've worked it out, now you won't run. <laughs> nah, fuck so it. if you fall in love <laughs> now... I got a bad knee. No, nah, okay, yeah. So if you fall in love now and you get your heart broken, you, you can't go anywhere. You've done everything. Pretty much. But I, I went to, um, yeah, I said from there to, to Ayers Rock, which is a beautiful, peaceful, probably the most stable, comfortable, nice five years I've had. Um, then I moved to Alice Springs for a woman. And then I stayed there for, I don't know, three, four, maybe five years. With with the circus, um, is it was it animals or just a... Yeah, we had bears. Yeah. We had uh, horses. I think that was it. Bears. You had a bear. A bears, Russian brown bears. It was the Great Moscow Circus. How were the bears? Like, what was it like with the bears around? Were, were they treated nice? Like, was it? I know it was a long time ago, so RSPCA would have been fucking non-existent. So, was it a rough time? Um, I can tell you one thing about the bears. Well, one, they had a twenty-four hour guy. His only job was bear watch. So no he, shit. Are the bears out? Fuck. I did a bit on it. I don't know if <laughs> they, I they revisit. Broke the lock. I, it was my first delving into doing bits on it, but. I, I did a bit about this guy, Wayno, who looked after the bears, and we'd all come back at night from going out, because that's what you did. And you'd go through the middle of the tent where Wayno was sitting with his flash yellow ute sitting there. And now that I think about it, Wayno was probably a pothead sitting there smoking and doing You're all in the circus, yeah, there's, some, there's all... But Wayno didn't have to hammer pegs in or set up tents. Wayno was just bear watch. Look after the bears. And Wayno was a bit older. He knew the tent boss or something. Like He had a good gig, Wayno. I think he got more than 290 a week. Probably. And there were us boys who stayed on site on caravans, and then there were the others like Wayno stayed there in his ute. He must have had to sleep at some point during the day when the bear trainers were up. Yeah. He had a ute with the, the sleeping bit on the back. But then there were others who worked for the Michael Edgeley, who was like the promoter, and they stayed in hotels. Okay. We were like the scum on the thing, yep. and they there. But yeah, one night we got back. I said, I did a bit. I, don't, I think I did it once. So I might do it again. But... We in Lismore, I think it was, every town, some blokes would drop off or get sacked and then we'd pick up new workers the same way. they picked me up in Bendigo. They'd sure. go to a town, we need workers, or it was too hard. Makes so sense. they fucked off. And this, we got this guy, I still remember we came back and Wayne was there. And Wayne didn't like us much, but he tolerated us. We're a bunch of young fools, half drunk. He's got a job to do and we're like, hey, mate, hey. I think occasionally, you know, if somebody get on the end of a joint, he rolled or something. And this... <laughs> This guy, Pete, I think was his name from Lismore, big, tall fool. And he'd come in and there's the bears and there's Wayne and we're talking to Wayne and there's Pete's over at the bears like, nah, 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 at the to the bears. bears. Oh, and Wayne's like, fuck off, mate. Stay Within Clawridge? Stay away from the fucking bears, mate. Uh -oh. You fucking idiot. And so Wayne would go back to talking to us or whatever and then this dickhead would be nah, 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 doing stuff to bears, which, you know, the bears just fucking looking at him. Wayne's looking at him. I'm going to kill this man. Wayne was Aussie. No, the Russian bear. The so, bear? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the bears were Russian. I mean, yeah. So we're there. And anyway, I kept going on and on and on. And it, it might sound unbelievable. So Wayne's like, listen, mate, I fucking told you, you've had enough fucking chances, right? And he sort of 
the guy's backing towards the cage and then he's just standing out there's no word of a lie the bear grabbed his hand grabbed his fucking and bit his fucking finger off he was fucking kind that's a kind bear well he couldn't have pulled him through into the cage but but he, he, did could, that. he could have dislodged his fucking arm from its socket if he just I, yanked it. That may also have happened. I don't know about Holy Norris. shit. But we're the all half per square inch on a bear is phenomenal. What, what are you talking? You're talking over six foot. Bear. Oh, this was a big one, yeah. This is like, yeah. Watch The Revenant with um, uh, Leonardo yeah. DiCaprio. It's one of the closest, most realistic scenes to what the physics of a bear will do to a human body. Oh, okay. Is that a spoiler? He's lucky. <laughs> Leonardo or Pete? So, Pete, right, so, and Wayne, I didn't give a fuck. It's like, I fucking warned you, mate. Yeah, fucking. And then, oddly enough, that was a joke I tried to do was something like, oddly enough, Pete's finger was recovered and 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 ended up on ice, which after a while, we worked out that that was what was going on with Wayne. He was also on ice. So, I've got to get the bit right. Right, okay. <laughs> but, yeah, he, um, and another, uh, there was one, I think, I'm not sure what town we went to. Twenty-eight of them. What, what was the other animal? Oh, sorry, I forgot. Horse, yeah. horse. Oh, yeah. There. And when they, they just did lame sort of horse stuff, but when they were on, God, they would have fucking hated that gig. We swept up their shit, and we'd have to stand at the ring so they wouldn't run into the crowd. So we'd stand like, like if the horse had decided to come at us, what was blocking them was an idiot. Like that was it. Yeah. But it was it was fun. I mean, the shows we'd set up, and then when the show was on, I was a ring waiter, or. So we helped out the clowns and we were like the props men. So we were running in the props during a show in our funny little suit with a little bow tie. And then the clowns, whose job is to distract the people from us doing that, mm. would be slapping us around, like slapping us around, getting us out of the way and that. So could you really have a more perfect spot to be in after being in a nut house to in a fucking circus? Like that? It was, you know, you write your own script. <laughs> so, But yeah. another bear one. I think it was the town after whatever. There was baby bears and ever as well. And the Russian bear trainers, let's call them Sergey and his missus. This bear, we were out there doing our usual stuff. We were, the tent was nearly up and we put it up. The flap opens of the tent and this little bear just went Pew! out into the bushes. Like gone. Off site. Followed by 20 wild Russians. We all went too. It was like quite exciting. I think the local paper got involved or whatever. So we're up there. There's this bear loose in the bush. They finally get up there, and the female trainer, very much like you see with, um, unfortunately, in supermarkets where the lady smacks the kid in the fucking supermarket lineup because he's doing the wrong thing. The bear's in the bush, and she's like, The little bear come out like a little kid who'd just fucking done the wrong thing. She turned him around, grabbed his little paw, and just smacked him on the bum a few times. And he just hung his little head and then walked back to the show with her. Yeah, they've broken him. They, they break him early. Break him, but it was very human-like, as in I've seen people do the same thing to human kids. Yeah. So, yeah, that was that was it in a nutshell, Johnny, how I ended up. So it's probably a long answer to a simple question. No, I love it. I love it. I'm, I'm, so well, I thought I might as well be real than feed you any bullshit or anything. I wanted to even ask you about uh, the actual performers, like the, the trapeze. Were they like stuntmen? They yeah, yeah, we had trapeze. Stunt women did flips and all that. All just, that, yeah. Did you see any horrific slips or... No, no. Were they, they all the, just fucking on it every night? They were on. You saw some trapeze slips and they'd just land in the net. Oh, beautiful. Which we'd put up. So, but And then... Were the clowns divas? Like really... You said the clowns were slapping you. Tall around. clown, short clown. The short clown was a cunt. <laughs> like he he belted us, 
And me and another guy from Shepparton. Can't you gang up on him? He's a fucking clown. Get your mates involved. In the early 20s, he was like 50 and mean. Nah, he was mean. And all we'd hear was, Like he knew a bit of English, like the swear words and stuff, but he'd abuse the fuck out in Russian. And the tall one was just his gimp. Like, I, I don't know what he did to him when the lights were out, but the tall one was broken as well. Mm. So he was the fall guy. But the short clan, he was a nasty, nasty. Like, we were scared of him. And he'd... <coughs> so what made you a man? You went, you went into the circus as a boy, and you came out as a man. Was that because of the raw shit you were exposed to? What you actually saw? The <laughs> there was of some it? raw shit, actually. Uh, well, yeah. The horses. But literal and, on, like, you know what I mean? Like, the whole... Yeah, just like I suppose I. It sounds like it sounds like you're. Uh, it's very Orwellian, like down and out in Paris and London by George Orwell, where he um, just goes to London and Paris. And he's homeless in London, and then he goes to Paris and he works in kitchens and he gets treated like shit because he's the lowest common denominator. Mm. And he slowly works his way up a little bit, but he's exposed to the class system and the pecking order and people how they're mistreated. And, and I've read all, I've read some Orwell. All that just mm. makes him come out hardened and more real yeah pretty much i suppose that, that maybe i should write a book about it at some point john well, but it's it, fucking interesting when you leave join the circus of but it did and i mean i was the only guy without a tattoo and each week i got pressure to have one there were scraps at night i was in a few scraps you know some guy took a dislike to me and had a few like punch-ons with him they were but, over booze right like mainly I don't know what I thought of this guy, but he he was just angry. Like and same, a few of them. Everyone in the circus working, everyone was on the run. Yeah. If it was from jail or an IVO from their missus, or whatever, all of them were on the run. And the 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 few that stayed on that you got to kind of know. Like there was one who I ran into years later in Darwin, and we were sort of mates. Like I'd love to run into him again. The rest of them, not so much. And. I imagine at some point, you never know, one of them might come through the shelter. <laughs> I hadn't sort of thought of it, but it wouldn't really surprise me. I'm sure there's a few of them in shelters in New South Wales or whatever. Like it was, they were runaways. They were they were bad dudes. They were, it was violent. It was nasty. There wasn't, you know, we'd have a bit of fun here and there. And you, you got, but you always had to have your you, guard up? You got your crew. Like No, but I'd stay, like there was a big Kiwi called Jason on the advance crew because they had two sets of the poles, so they'd go a week early to the next town and set them up, set basically, up. on the way. And for whatever reason, Jason, this big, mad Kiwi, who would use a sledgehammer with both hands. Man, I'd never used any of that shit. I broke so many sledgehammers. That was just in the bosses. I'm like, this thing's in the, it's not the bloody tool, it's a man swinging it. And things like that toughened me up. And I got good on the sledgehammer, and I loved it. But this Jason, he'd swing one with him, one with the other. And, like, he was so effective as a worker. They loved him. He'd been... I think previously with Silver Circus, but he had runs on the board. And he ran a 24-hour bank. So if guys were broke, which we all were, once you yeah. took your two ninety out on pay night, spent the lot, I was pretty sensible because I didn't go out. I'd go out in the last night of the week or whatever with me bottle of wine, maybe have a few drinks. And my main concern was getting to know a, a girl from town who had worked that week selling popcorn or whatever because each week they'd employ guys for it. And they'd employ locals, they'd put an ad in, and they'd all turn up. And I suppose I was lonely and busted, but I liked female company, so I'd get to know them in whatever way. I think the first town might have been Auburn, we went there, and I'd like met a girl who'd sold popcorn or whatever, and then she's like, oh, come to LJ's or whatever tonight. I did. Went back to her place, and I was so happy to sleep in a real house in a real bed. Mm. 
And I still remember she's like, oh, you know, you can stay in the bed, but no funny business, no nothing. I'm like, yep, no problem at all, nothing. Got in the bed, lay down, real bed, and she fucking mauled me like I'd never been mauled as soon as the light went out. So there was a lot of that sort of stuff, which I suppose I, after what I'd been through, it was nice to... Feel some love? Yeah. In a cold, cold world? <laughs> yeah, because you, you weren't getting it with the lads. Were you the youngest on tour? That, you... There was a guy we got in Shepparton who was only about 18. Okay, so... And you... he and I buddied up, and then when we did the, the did prop Jason work... take he... a liking to you? Yeah. Yeah, so Jason made you go up ahead with him, so he... Jason protected me. Was that because you were young as well? Like he I don't took... know, he just, maybe I made him laugh. We just, Jason yep. sort of took in me and this, and there was nothing, you know. Un- unusual about it. He was just a nice big Kiwi guy yep. who took a liking to these two. He, maybe he had a nice side to him and thought these two guys are going to get chewed up and spat out. So he looked after me and this guy, Dean, from Shepparton. And mm. Dean and I, we would work in a team during the show. So if I was on one end of a thing, he'd be on the other end. So we'd jump into the ring, over the ring box, and we'd be going through, and we were trying to get laughs. Yeah, we, we had this thing and we'd sort of bounce it up and down and we, we used to talk about it backstage and we'd intentionally put these beaten, you know, stupid looks on our faces like we're just this dumb props man who doesn't know what's going on mm. and intentionally get in the clown's way for a cheap laugh. And we'd get the laugh. And if we got more laughs from him... He'd belt you. Well, he'd belt you in the ring, but out the back he would fucking destroy us. Absolutely. Because, hey, what are these fucking... We were meant to be dumb props and we sort of almost turned it opposite on them because we, we played our role too well of just having this stupid look on our head like there was no thoughts in our brains and intentionally like I said we'd get in the way or we would do whatever we could for a laugh so even then I was looking for a laugh from and sometimes we, we'd do really well we had our own little set routines after a while of what we'd do with certain like there was a big it was a tyre but they painted it like they had green stuff on it to make it look like a pond so when the performers come out they'd jump off the trampoline thing onto this thing which was meant to be a pond but it was a tyre so they could bounce off that and then up into the arms or land on someone else's shoulders that sort of stuff yeah so we knew all the sort of tricks like that but so we'd go out with this and it was quite hard to grip it from underneath so we'd make the struggle even harder than it was just to I don't know get some comedy yeah just be comical get I a wish laugh it- I would, How can you not know the answer to that? You're just trying to get a fucking laugh. It's my whole life, trying to get yeah, a laugh. But I would pay, I don't have much, but I would pay anything, anything to see, I don't think it would be possible, but if someone had just filmed a show, there's a few photos here and there, but I would love, you know, just a live shot because I tell you, working the show too, like the adrenaline of it, putting up the trapeze net, we'd be sprinting up, put the pole in there, do this, tie this off, like we... After a while, once you got the hang of it, well, who knows? It was man. a real buzz, like like if you're running glasses at a busy nightclub. Maybe not now, but maybe in a few years, someone will watch this and have a go. Hey, I've got an actual handicam video. Or some girl from Tamworth will turn up and say, "There's that prick. You owe me maintenance for thirty five years." <laughs> <laughs> I do have a bit of a fear of that. <laughs> oh, cool, man. So that um, I don't know if that answers whatever the original question was. It does. Um, We've been talking for too long. We've got to wrap it up. It was fun. Sorry, I probably over-talked and you under-questioned, but yeah. Um, uh, no, you're very apologetic about the way the interview... It, there's no rules, man. Oh, there's one there's, other thing before we you stop. You just chat. Um, I did watch a few interviews and I saw this poor lady and... 
Where'd you get that from? I've had that for years and years, and I just thought, I don't know, maybe they knew each other. That's or they trippy. Could, or there was some loneliness. I don't know. Yeah, no, she's single. Okay. Yeah, Sorry, mate. But I like it, though. <laughs> All right, then. <laughs> Good try, though. <laughs> Good try. She doesn't seem to be affected by it. I should have known. I should have known by the look. It's very minimal. I want to yeah, keep it that so way. Yeah, so that's it, Johnny. It's all about trying to get a laugh and loneliness and heartbreak and, and deeper things. And I oh, Mate, I could talk to you for hours. Thanks. You're very easy and nice to talk to. Uh, you're welcome. You're a good soul. Catch Glenn every Monday at the Bergie Seltzer, his resident MC at uh, Funny at the Brunny. Um, do you think that gig is going to go back to the original venue up the road or God knows? No, probably he doesn't even know either because lawyers are involved with that pub. Well, the guys... And he hates lawyers. They live in hell. The guys who ran it, who now run the Bergie, have got nothing to do with the other. So okay. I imagine because of its location at some point, someone with heaps of cash will buy it and reopen there in some form. I think or not. real estate agents are going to gobble it up for apartments. You'd hope not. Oh, uh, come on, man. Look at Brunswick. There's, a, there's a hole in Brunswick without it. Like, do they need more apartments now? Oh, fuck. Real, do real estate... Did Pablo need to sell more coke? They're real estate agents. They won't fucking stop. They're psychos. Are more people coming to Victoria with its current state? I don't know. I, I, yeah, I don't know, mate. I, I hope not. I, and I imagine or hope one day it'll open as a pub. If it did, I, I, yeah, I can't really answer that one, mate. All right. Well, um, come down to the Brunny, Bergie Seltzer, every Monday night and uh, see a great, fantastic lineup of comedians trying new stuff. Um, open micers trying it's one of my favourite rooms it's uh, only because you get a real assessment of where the fuck you're at with your material uh, it's a tough room yeah real's good tough, ro- tough, tough room tough room but we have fun there like but it's fair if you're funny you'll get laughs um, yeah, we've had some beautiful nights here fucking oath we have it's a great love it and that's what it's all about like I said that when they surprised me recently on my birthday and I don't know if you were there for that one no I wasn't man but, but they I did they the surprised picture. me and it was nice Seriously, it was just one of those nights where you do float off stage and you do float home and it's as perfect as, as you could get it. And I think, yeah, life can be nasty, so I tell myself that sometimes. Lighten up a bit, just, you know, it's nice to entertain and to give people who don't often a reason to smile. That's it. Thanks for having me, bro. Love you, man. Bye.